Databases go offline. Services fail to scale up. Deployment errors can cause an application backend to get DDoSed. When an event happens that prevents your company from operating as expected, it is known as an incident. Software teams respond to an incident by issuing a fix. Sometimes that fix returns the software to its ideal state. Other times, the software remains in a degraded state, and it takes more fixing to return the software to the place that it should be. One way that a software team can learn from an incident is through incident reproduction. When an incident is turned into a reproducible system, it becomes a predictable training exercise, rather than a surprising and painful outage. Tammy Budow is an engineer with Gremlin, a company that makes chaos engineering software. Chaos engineering is the process of creating controlled experiments that simulate outages. Tammy returns to the show to discuss common incident types and how those can be made reproducible for training exercises. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software, it's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low code or no code projects, or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is brought to you by Datadog, a full-stack monitoring platform that integrates with over 350 technologies like Gremlin, PagerDuty, AWS Lambda, Spinnaker, and more. With rich visualizations and algorithmic alerts, Datadog can help you monitor the effects of chaos experiments. It can also identify weaknesses and improve the reliability of your systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog to start a free 14-day trial and receive one of Datadog's famously cozy t-shirts. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog. Thank you to Datadog for being a long-running sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Tammy Buto, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. You've been at Gremlin for almost two years. How has your perspective on chaos engineering evolved since joining the company? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed over the last two years. And I think when I first joined Gremlin, you know, I'd, I'd come in and I'd been doing chaos engineering the last few years before that at Dropbox, where I'd primarily focused on chaos engineering for very specific services, storage, databases, build code workflows. And, you know, to be so focused on those areas, you learn a lot about the detail, like how should you specifically practice chaos engineering on databases. And joining Gremlin, it gave me the chance to really like step back and look at how you can practice chaos engineering in a number of different ways on different cloud providers. So I've been able to look at AWS, GCP, Azure, but then also all types of different systems and for different reasons. So yeah, one of the things that I'm most interested right now is how you can use chaos engineering to reproduce incidents. And by that, I mean, say, for example, looking at some of the biggest incidents that have happened at your company, or even that have impacted the entire industry, like, you know, massive DNS outages, there was one with Dyn, and then the really big S3 US East one outage that impacted so many companies, you know, that we all use and love. And yeah, just being able to figure out how you can use chaos engineering to reproduce those incidents to make sure that if they ever happen again, that you're ready. And that to me has been a really good learning lesson. I've just been able to actually have a lot more time to step back and think about how we as an industry can evolve. So that's been very good because before I you know, was so much more focused on in the weeds, specifically on databases and trying to improve MySQL in particular. 
So now this has been awesome to just get to really think like as an industry, how do we evolve, not just MySQL specifically for chaos engineering. Gremlin is a very specific type of infrastructure product, but it is nonetheless an infrastructure product. Do you have any general lessons about how to build infrastructure products that you've learned over the last year? Yeah, sure. I think like I've learned a lot. So some of the interesting things that happened early on, you know, when you look at building developer software, developer tools, and specifically infrastructure tools, I previously worked at DigitalOcean. So I got to work on cloud infrastructure there. And I learned a ton through that experience, which was awesome. And I think like the main thing that I learned is there and also at Gremlin is when you're building infrastructure tools, this goes for building it as a business, as a company where you're providing software to people all over the world. Or if you're an engineer that is an infrastructure engineer working inside a company and you're building some sort of tooling or software or service for people inside your organization, that's what I was doing at Dropbox. I was building storage systems for other engineers to use at Dropbox to then service customers. I think like one of the most important things which people you know, don't really spend too much time on, but it's very important is onboarding of your customers, of your users. And that includes installation and making sure that that's really easy. Like that's actually one of the really important areas to focus on. And I got to actually do a lot of work to improve that while I was at Dropbox, where, you know, I spoke about this at GopherCon when I did a talk there a few years ago, but we dramatically improved the onboarding experience because you want your customers who, you know, at Gremlin in our case, they're engineers. You want them to be able to love using your product from the first day. You want it to be super easy to use. You want to be able to help them get up and running. You want everybody to be able to get value out of it as fast as possible. And you want to just reduce any issues that they come up against. You know, often we call it like developer friction. You want there to be no developer friction. So yeah, I've got to actually do that for most of my career. And it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I think we could do better as an industry too. Like I look forward to seeing that evolve over time because, you know, when you do think about yourself as an engineer, you're always building this. If you're an infrastructure engineer, you're always building it for other engineers, like the product that you build if you're inside a company or if you work at developer tools, you're building it for engineers who are your customers. And then the other thing I've got to focus on is, you know, we have an agent that we deploy on hosts or inside containers. And one of the things when I first joined Gremlin was I was like, all right, like I think Kubernetes is just going to get more and more popular and it makes sense to focus on that and containers in general. So we actually have the ability to use containers with Gremlin and that was a big thing that we released as part of our product. So if you go to the UI, you can see that you can attack specific containers when you're doing your chaos engineering and you can also install Gremlin in a container. And I've actually been a Kubernetes user since 2014. So it's been a long time for me. And it's been interesting to see that evolve too, to go from, you know, everything running directly on the host to now a lot of companies are using Kubernetes. And I just think it's going to become more and more popular, especially managed services when we look at Kubernetes. But then that makes you think too, you know, a lot of people say to me, hey, like, but if I use a managed provider, will everything just work out of the box? Auto scaling, you know, reliability, redundancy, failover. And obviously we know, no, it won't just work out of the box. Like you have to verify it and make sure that it does work. But, you know, that's just what you learn as you do these chaos engineering experiments and as you try out new software and you try and build infrastructure services, even when you are using a managed provider. Yeah, from my experience talking to people, it doesn't take chaos engineering for you to figure out that your Kubernetes installation is a little less awesome than is advertised by the most generous Kubernetes marketing out there. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing that I would love to like dive into more. I've recently been reading some like failure stories specifically around Kubernetes or containers in general, and just like learning more about what are the challenges that people are coming up against. And, you know, since so many people are interested in using it, what are the things that we can do to improve? Because, you know, Kubernetes is open source, so we can all contribute back. And I mean, that's really exciting to me. I love the idea of diving into those issues and then, you know, being able to actually come together as a community, fix those problems, and then keep moving forward. Like, that's a big thing that I love to do. So what are the common failure cases, failure scenarios within Kubernetes deployments that you're seeing? 
Yeah. So one of the ones would definitely be auto scaling. So I think that's an interesting one. So recently we created a, we we launched a new product called Gremlin Scenarios. And the idea there was let's look at common types of outages that have happened in the past and then try and figure out what scenarios can we create to be able to reproduce those outages so that if they ever happen again, like you won't get bitten again. So you'll be able to handle it when it strikes again. And so one of the things there is we have a failure mode, which is, okay, I had a pod fail or I had a host fail or, you know, I got a lot of traffic and I didn't auto scale correctly. And I think that's an interesting thing too, because we've seen ourselves, like when we set up Kubernetes, say on Amazon, on AWS, you know, maybe you think out of the box that auto scaling is going to work, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you need to actually like make sure that you're configuring it correctly to meet your needs. And it also depends on how you're auto scaling. I think often everyone like knows the term auto scaling, but it's like, let's go to the next level. Like how does it auto scale? Does it auto scale based on CPU spiking? And then how much does it have to spike by? Is it because it spikes specifically on a node or is it because like you have it spiking across one pod or multiple pods? There are a lot of those questions. And to me, it's kind of that idea of, you know, the model where you ask like why five times and you keep going down like or how, like how does it auto scale? How does CPU spike? Like, how do I know that CPU is spiking? How long does it take to auto scale? Does it scale back down or am I stuck at this like really high cluster that I'm now paying for. So that's another thing as well, you know, scaling up, but then scaling back down as traffic adjusts over time. So yeah, I've seen a lot of interesting things there. And then I saw that recently somebody shared a compilation of Kubernetes failure stories. So I've been reading those as well to learn more about it. But I honestly think the interesting thing to me is a lot of the issues are the same issues that you would see if you weren't running Kubernetes, which is interesting to me, like very similar to the issues that you would see if you're running EC2 and you're doing auto scaling there. So I think we can actually learn a lot in terms of preventing outages by looking at outages that have happened in the past. You know, were we able to manage auto scaling correctly before? How do we know that we can manage it correctly now, now that we're using Kubernetes? Like you need to really verify that. Do you ever get a feeling that maybe this whole Kubernetes thing is crazy. Like maybe way too many people are thinking about this whole replatforming effort or is it definitely worth it? Yeah, I don't know. I used to wonder about it. Like because I've been, you know, working in tech for a long time now, over 10 years. And I started in like, you know, I guess like you would say a very old school sort of industry. I mean, I worked on incidents that involved mainframes in banking. And, you know, if someone was to say to me, hey, Tammy, do you think that every company should use mainframes? I'd be like, no, definitely not. But I do think that it's good for us to evolve and to improve. I just think we need to do it together and we need to share the results. Like I actually am a big fan of that. I'm a fan of using new technologies and trying to move forward because I have been so far back in the past and I know what that world was like and I'm really glad we are where we are now but I think that you know to get better it takes time and it takes effort and you know there's a lot of big companies that are focused on figuring out how we can use Kubernetes and I think that that's a good thing actually it's good for us to come together and focus and it means that you don't have everybody going off in many many different directions which I think would be worse I actually like that the trend that I'm seeing with everyone coming together to try and say, how do we fix this together as an industry? Like, how do we make systems more reliable? How do we make systems more scalable? And that's why I'm involved myself. But I totally understand where you're coming from because obviously it, it is very popular. But I mean, I've been involved in Kubernetes since 2014 and you know now it's almost 2020. So it's actually been a long time and it's really like, I've seen Kubernetes evolve. It was much harder to use back in 2014. It was much more confusing. It's so much better now. Like that's also the thing. Like I've come from where I'm like, wow, like it's like night and day. It's totally different. And over that period of time, infrastructure's gotten a lot better. Just using infrastructure, yeah. I feel across the web, I feel like the web as a whole has gotten a lot better. And I, I don't know for sure, but something about it just, you know, to the extent that I can put my finger in the wind and, and say that this is true. It's something about it feels like Kubernetes is to blame for a lot of particular kinds of improvements that have occurred over the last six years. But that said, I do wonder, like, you know, is it for everybody? Or is this, maybe is this something that, like, 
either you're a cloud provider or you are offering a service that has such a particular type of load that it begins to look like a cloud provider. But I don't know. These are very nascent thoughts for me. I think those are great questions, though, like awesome questions to ask because... To me, like the reason I like Kubernetes as well is because I came from a database background where you thought a lot about, you know, redundancy and reliability. So you did want to have, yeah, the idea of like having a primary and having replicas. And then with Kubernetes, that's what it's, you know, really trying to push is this idea that if a pod goes down, then there should be another pod that comes back to replace it, which to me just reminds me of like scaling databases. Like that's what you do. And I like that we're thinking about compute like that as well, because we always did think of storage like that because you just had to like if you lost your storage machines then you would lose your data so it was very bad whereas if you lost your compute then you know maybe your users can't access your website which is also really bad so now we're taking it more serious but i still think there's a lot of work to do to be able to get to a point where it is reliable but i mean i think that that's one of the reasons why people are interested in kubernetes the other thing is i think it depends on the workload you know, not obviously not every workload makes sense for Kubernetes databases. Like I don't think that there's many other products if you were to run database infrastructure work much better than on Kubernetes, right? Because it's more focused on compute workloads. So I think you always have to figure out what is my business? Like what is the core service that we offer to our customers? Does it make sense for us to run it on this type of infrastructure? And also what is the scale? How many users do you have? Does it meet the needs? There's a lot of work that you need to do there when you're planning it out. Have you heard much from anybody who's using AWS Fargate or the Azure container yeah. instances or Amazon ECS? Like, I'm very fascinated yep. by these kind of flavors of Kubernetes that are a little bit more like the Heroku kind of like heavily managed experience. To me, yep. these make sense for so many enterprises, Yeah, which maybe in some cases deploying Kubernetes for mysterious reasons or maybe good reasons that I don't understand. Yeah. Like, I mean, I myself have got to try out a lot of different platforms. Like I've recently used Fargate when I, I was trying that out because I wanted to see what it's like. I use it to create an API and I was pulling data from DynamoDB and I would say it was an awesome experience. Like it was really good to use. I thought it worked out really well for my use case, specifically that use case. And yeah, like, I mean, I thought that was great. I had a great experience. I think it's been interesting to see AWS services change over time too. Like I would say some of them are becoming like much more easier to use. DynamoDB, I'm also, you know, I've been using that a lot. We use it at Gremlin and I think it's become like really good to use. And it has a lot of, you know, people are thinking about it in the right ways when they think about databases and reliability and durability and scaling out Dynamo. I've just seen a lot of improvements happen. So it's good to see AWS, you know, listening to customers, listening to the community and trying to create these different types of products. And like you said, like Fargate is heavily managed, and it's also really easy to use and it's fast. Like for me to create, you know, my DynamoDB database and then use Fargate to create an API, that was fast. It was hardly any time at all, like maybe under an hour, which is pretty amazing to me when you think of like before how long it would take you to create that infrastructure. And like to me as an infrastructure engineer, I was like, oh, wow, this is fast. Now I can move on to the next thing that I need to do. If you are a SaaS or software vendor looking to modernize your application distribution to gain more enterprise adoption, check out Replicated.com. Replicated provides tools to deliver your Kubernetes-based application to enterprise customers as a modern, on-prem, private instance. That means your customers will be able to install and update your application just about anywhere, bare metal servers, in a cloud VPC, GovCloud, in their own Kubernetes cluster, vSphere. This is a secure way that your customers can use your application without ever having to send data outside of their control. Instead of your customers sending their data to you, you send your application to your customer. Now, this might sound difficult and Maybe you're not used to it because you're a SaaS vendor, you're a software vendor. But Replicated promises that recent advancements from tools like Kubernetes make it far easier than before. 
and the replicated tools can help vendors operationalize and scale this process. The replicated tools are already trusted by noteworthy customers like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others. And as a result, over 45 of the Fortune 100 already have an application deployed via replicated in their infrastructure. That's a strong sign of adoption. Go to replicated.com for a 30-day trial of the full replicated platform. You can also listen to an interview with Grant Miller, the CEO of Replicated, that we did a while ago. Thank you to Replicated for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can check it out for yourself at replicated.com and get a free 30-day trial. The Chaos Conference was fairly recently, and you came into San Francisco for it. I stopped in very briefly, and I had a conversation with Colton, who is the CEO of Gremlin, just at this after-party thing. And, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I've, I've talked to him several times in the past, but it, it was something about the being at the conference that I started to realize that what you're working on is pretty, it's a total category creation. Not only is it a category creation, the chaos engineering category, but it's a category creation of a very arguably a painful product. It's hard to adopt. I mean, that's the point, is that it is going to make you have kind of a bad time to front load the bad times so that the good times will roll more smoothly and more frequently. And it was interesting because I was talking to him and then, you know, somebody from a large tech company came up and was talking to him about advocating for chaos engineering within the organization and that it's you know it's really this process of evangelism there's so much evangelism that's required to convince people that chaos engineering is worth doing how is the evangelism going are you feeling like a sense of of understanding in the engineering community about the worth of chaos engineering yeah i mean it it's interesting that makes me think of a lot of things so i think like As an engineer, you know, whenever you are creating a plan for what you want to deliver in a quarter or in a year, you know, you need to evangelize what that is internally in your company, anything. Like if you want to build a new service, if you want to do a migration, if you want to replace the system for another system, you need to try and understand how to get buy-in for what you want to do. Then you need to figure out how do I best present this information within my organization? Who are the people that I need to speak with? And then you need to actually go there. You need to meet with them. You need to present your idea. You need to get their feedback. You need to give them the chance to ask you questions. And I mean, I've been doing this for my whole career, you know, whatever it is that I wanted to build, if I had an idea and I have a lot of ideas. So I always need to figure out how do I package this up? How do I present it? How do I get buy-in? How do I get feedback? How do I then actually get started? How do I get headcount? There are so many things that come into play there. But to me, chaos engineering is the same as that. If I was thinking like, all right, I want to, I mean, when I was at Dropbox, I did a massive migration where we removed legacy MySQL databases and moved to a new database that we built. I had to get approval to have 70 engineers across the entire company help me do that big migration because it required a lot of rewriting of code and a lot of work for backfilling data. So, I mean, I just think of it in the same way as that. There are always big things that you want to get done. And my advice, like I think SREs do this all the time, like SREs always have to be advocating for reliability. You have to advocate and say, hey, we need to be measuring the right things. We need to be actually caring about our customers and making sure we don't have a ton of downtime and making sure we don't get tons of support tickets and customers complaining that our product isn't working as expected. So yeah, I don't know. For me, it comes naturally because I've been doing it for so long, but I'm very passionate about whatever I build and whatever I create. And I want it to be of a really good top quality. So that's my advice when people ask me, how do I do it internally? I'm like, look, you have to be a bit brave. Like that's my first tip. You have to be brave. You have to like really back your idea. You have to collect data. I always recommend if you're an engineer and you have an idea for something that you want to do at your organization, it's better to actually like, you know, this is a tip that I learned really early on, like put together a little slide deck, even if you've never made slides before, like just like five slides, what is the why, how, what behind your idea, and then figure out who you need to present it to. It's much more effective to actually like 
try and book in some time or go to like open office hours with your CTO and actually take your deck and present your deck in person and get feedback in real time instead of, you know, just posting in say like a Slack channel or just shooting someone an email or just shooting someone a DM. Like that's a really easy thing to do, but it it's not as high value and you won't get as much return on investment because, you know, you're not investing much time into that. Maybe you've thought about it a lot, but just like writing a small sentence doesn't, it really like enable you to showcase your idea and all the thought and time you've put into thinking about it. So yeah, I, I mean, I think it's great. I love to see engineers really advocating for their ideas and what they want to do. And I would say like as an engineering manager, I love it when engineers come to me and say, Hey, Tammy, like I've collected this data. I identify this problem in the organization. Here's some ideas that I have for how we could potentially fix it. You know, here are like three different types of ways we could do it. Would love to hear your feedback. Like, do you think this this might fit into our roadmap? That's awesome. And it actually like hardly ever happens. You'll notice that like often really senior engineers will definitely do that. But I think it's great for every engineer to start thinking about doing that. That's how we really move forward and how you provide great value. When you're encouraging an organization to adopt chaos engineering or somebody in an organization is trying to get buy-in to adopt chaos engineering, where is the place to start? Is it like the CIO or the CTO or is it just like an individual engineer within the company? Can it be a bottoms-up thing or does it have to be top-down? So I always like whenever somebody comes to me, it could be anybody that could come and, you know, sometimes it's an engineer, they've read about it, maybe they came to a talk or they listened to a podcast, you know, and they wanted to know more about chaos engineering. And then often they'll ask me like, yeah, how do I get my team excited about this? Like, I think it could be useful. And I'll say like, hey, like, what are your top problems that you have right now? Because to me, like I love to focus on value. Like, so what is the value you can provide? And the best way to provide value is to solve problems that are like really painful for people in your organization. So for example, say you just have a lot of problems with on-call, like that is a very common issue in our industry, people getting burned out, people working really long hours. You know, I was on call every second week and I was on like a, you know, 24-7 schedule I would be getting paged all hours. I'd have to stay home all weekend long because I'd need to be able to open up my laptop, you know, within like a minute or two to be able to get online and fix problems. So I've lived that um, life, you know, lived it, breathed it, and I know how painful it was. And a lot of people want to fix that. And so then, for example, if that's the big problem that they have at their organization, they've got a lot of pain from on call, then you can say, all right, well, you can actually use chaos engineering as a way to improve your on-call. And I've done it in many ways. Like one of the good ways to do it is to use it for on-call training. So you actually go, okay, let's sit in a room together. It's not, you know, the middle of the night where you're getting paged and you're by yourself at home. Let's actually train everybody up before they go on call, which is like a really new idea for our industry. And I randomly just came up with that idea one day when I was at Dropbox because it didn't make sense to me to just throw people the pager and say, good luck. I just thought it wasn't fair and it didn't set people up for success. And I love the idea of setting everybody else up for success. So yeah, that's that's one thing that I might say, okay, you know, if you have a problem there, let's figure out how to do on-call training. We can reproduce your common incidents that have happened in the past using chaos engineering. When we're all in a room together, we can start on staging. We don't have to start on production and that's how you can really do it. So that's a great way. If they're really struggling from downtime, from outages, then you can also use chaos engineering for that too. So there are a lot of different things that I like to focus on. If people are having a lot of problems with the network and they're not sure how to debug that, then it might be, I might say, well, maybe you need to focus more on network chaos engineering where you're injecting latency, packet loss, maybe black holing traffic. So I think that's really what I would say. It's not, you know, just one thing of everybody across the industry should do this specific thing. I think it's really about figuring out where your problems are in your organization and then figuring out how you can provide value and then following through, being brave, like saying, hey, this is what I want to do. And I think you need to find other people in your organization to work with you. I always love to go to like my VP of engineering or my CTO to say, hey, like this is what I think we could do to get value. I think we could actually get a lot of value by doing this for three months to start. And then let's like reevaluate it. Let's do it as an experiment. That's one of my biggest tips. People seem to really listen when you say that and they're happy to give you a chance. I've never had anyone say no. 
So not yet. <laughs> so you mentioned there something about incident reproduction. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, when a company has an incident, is it usually that this incident is something that happens on a regular basis, like the same incident that recurs on a regular basis, that may be the same kind of node dying or the same database error, or are incidents highly variable? Yeah, I would say there's actually incidents can fall into those two buckets. So there are some incidents where like, I will say like they are the same incident over and over and over. And a lot of people, you know, some people in industry disagree with that, but I will give you an example for myself where I know I just got the same incident over and over. So say if you're in a small team, maybe you only have three engineers on that team, that can be pretty common. And that's what your on-call rotation is. And say you're on call and every night you get paged at... 8 p.m. because a batch job is hitting your database and it's ending up causing performance issues and you're getting paid for it because there's some sort of problem and you identify that, yeah, it's just some random batch job that someone set up to hit the database to pull data. And then you realize, okay, well, we need to actually figure out, do we need this batch job? Can we get rid of it? Like who actually set this batch job up? And I've found, you know, that has happened a lot to me where there are different types of batch jobs that are doing that. But I'll often see it just happens over and over again because the batch job would pull at the same time and hammer the database at the same time time and it is just the same incident and you know as a conclusion to those incidents often I'll find that yeah it was set up by somebody that's no longer even at the organization so you're like well actually no one's using this anymore this isn't valuable like we should really turn this off and I think there's a lot of that happening but if you don't ask like why is the database getting hammered at the same time every night why am I getting paged for this like where is this batch job coming from why was it set up who set it up do we even need to run it anymore? Like, can we get rid of it? Then you're just going to be having that same pain like every single night and you're going to have that same incident just repeating over and over and over. And that happens a lot. You know, same thing with, like you said, machines going down and there's no automation to bring them back up. And I saw recently there was an outage where it was just a host failing for one company and it took them an hour to bring back up the host. You know, that's not very good. That's a really long time meantime to recovery for just starting up a new host. So I don't think that's good either. But then when you look at other incidents that are very rare, you know, they might be, it might be something very unusual that happened. And maybe it's only ever happened once in the life of the organization, and it never happened again, then that's important to know that as well. And you put that into the buckets of incidents that are much less likely to reoccur, but you do really need to separate those out. And I think an important thing to do there is also to name your incidents. So this isn't common practice yet in the industry, but like, I wish it was. Something we did at Dropbox was we would name our incidents. So it would be like, Sev Zero Lazy Walrus. And we actually gave it a real name. It was automatically generated using a Python tool that had been built in house. And that was awesome because then you can say, hey, like this incident happened again, like Lazy Walrus or Slow Crow. And everyone knows what that incident is. But if it never happens again, then you know, you never hear that name again. But I think that is really important to track repeat incidents. And that's why you name incidents. Mm. Among these two buckets, let's say the incidents that recur on a regular basis versus the ones that seem to be fairly unique, which are the ones that we should try to reproduce? So I would actually say, this is a common question that I get as well, like where do I start when I'm doing my chaos engineering experiments? And the first thing that I like to say is, first, figure out what your top five most critical systems are for your company. Like that's important first. So say, for example, if your critical service is a DynamoDB database, then you need to go and figure out, all right, like what outages and incidents have we happened for DynamoDB in the past since it's one of our top five critical services? Then look at those two buckets and go, well, what was the impact of those incidents? We have this really rare incident. How long did it take us for it to go through? and actually get resolved. Do we have action items that came out of it that we still haven't actually closed that are still open? So that's one of the things too. Like if you have a really rare incident that occurred that is in like the rare incident bucket, but it still has open action items and it's been three months, then those are the incidents that really scare me because maybe it's like 
a sev zero that has open action items that no one actually fixed and there was no follow-up after the post-mortem, then those incidents are ones to, you know, talk about again to make sure that you're okay. You need to verify that everything has been put in place correctly to make sure that that doesn't happen again if it was a really big incident. And that's where you can use chaos engineering too to verify that the actions that you took to make sure that everything was okay actually worked out well. And then if it's something that's in the bucket of this happens all the time, like you definitely need to be reproducing those incidents too, because that's going to help you get rid of them. But I think it's, you know, often people say, should I go for low hanging fruit or should I go for the things that are more impactful, the things that are actually impacting your business? Like I would say, go for the things that are impacting your business. If that's like, it's taking up a ton of engineering time, it's causing customer pain, it's causing us to lose money. Like that's how you should be evaluating whether or not you should focus on something and spend time on fixing it. In the organizations that successfully adopt chaos engineering, how do they find the resources to make time for it? Because most high-performing engineering organizations, you know, they're constantly just feeling like they're behind on everything. There's so much, so much stuff to do. How do you get the will to prioritize getting chaos engineering going within an organization? Well, actually, now is a great time to start thinking about it because a lot of people are doing 2020 planning. So that's really important. If your company does do yearly planning, then you can say, like, this is something that I think could help us train up everybody so everyone feels confident when they're on call, help us reduce outages, help us improve our mean time to detection, mean time to resolution, and really put forward the case for why you want to do it, how it's actually going to benefit your company. And that's a great thing to say. So to say, hey, like I want to pitch that we include this in our 2020 planning. And like I said before, put together a deck and present that to your manager or your VP or your CTO. You know, if you can go to open office hours, you can actually get some time with them and you can talk about it. And I think that's a great discussion to have. You might also identify, you know, sometimes as an, when you're an engineer in an organization, you see your part of the world, but it's really hard to see other areas. But if you chat to your CTO or your VP and say, hey, like, what are the biggest problems that you're noticing across our engineering org? They might be seeing, I mean, they probably will be seeing totally different things than what you see, but they also might not know as much detail about what you're working on and the problems that you're being impacted with day to day. Like the amount of people I've spoken to over the last two years who weren't in engineering and didn't know that on-call was a thing that engineers did is like very, like, I was like, wow, I can't believe it. Like people in other teams just don't know that we do on-call. They don't know that we have to go home and get paged and have to resolve incidents and, you know, have to not go out on the weekend and have to be doing all these things. So if other departments don't know about that, it's really hard for them to understand that actually, no, I'm spending like my entire weekend doing this work and that's going to impact my ability to actually deliver new features. So I think we need to have more conversations with say like the product teams and the marketing teams and the sales teams and the business side of the company so they actually understand where our time is going and often like how we're needing to spend our weekends. You talked a little bit earlier about the onboarding, getting the onboarding right for people who are trying out an infrastructure product, whether that's an internal tool or an externally facing tool. What have you found to be keys to make it easier for people to get started with chaos engineering? Is there some one weird trick you've learned over the last year to make it easier for people to get started with this stuff? Yeah. So one of the things I like to say is that for me, the CPU attack is the hello world of chaos engineering. And the reason for that is because it's very, very easy to see in your monitoring tooling. I think that that's a good place to start. So if you run a CPU attack using Gremlin on a host or on a container, then you'll be able to actually see that pop up in, say, Datadog or New Relic, SignalFX, whatever monitoring tooling or observability tooling you're using. And that's really great to me because, say, for example, if you do like a shutdown or you know, like a shutdown attack where you shut down a host or shut down a container, it's less visible and it doesn't show people the actual results as clearly as a CPU attack. And then when you think about CPU attacks, you think like, why do I need to think about CPU? Well, usually like that's how auto scaling is configured. It's configured by you get to a certain point in terms of CPU 
And then say like if you're using AWS, it'll kick off your auto scaling rules and then your system will scale. And then that's how you make sure that you're able to service all of your customers' needs. So yeah, that's the way that I say to get started is to just first focus on building yourself your own personal demo. So you can just see that all working together. You've got your chaos engineering software. You're able to actually see the results in your monitoring tooling. And that should really not take you long to build, but then you're able to show other people and explain it. And then from there, I think the best way to get started is to then focus on what are your top five critical systems? What other systems should you then focus on exploring? And then now that we've built Gremlin scenarios, I'm really excited about the idea of we actually have recommended scenarios. So you can focus on looking at what types of outages or incidents should you reproduce using our recommended scenarios. And we have them there for DNS outages, auto scaling, like I said, and host failure, node failure. So you can go through and actually try each of those out on your own infrastructure and make sure that you're able to handle it. And we've built in the ability to record the hypothesis and also your notes and your results. And there's a calendar functionality too. So you can share those scenarios with your team. You can also create custom scenarios. I think that's an exciting thing that I've been thinking. I can't wait to see what the community creates in terms of their own custom scenarios and to hear what value they get out of running those. Cruise is a San Francisco-based company building a fully electric, self-driving car service. Building self-driving cars is complex, involving problems up and down the stack, from hardware to software, from navigation to computer vision. We are at the beginning of the self-driving car industry, and Cruise is a leading company in the space. Join the team at Cruise by going to getcruise.com careers. That's G-E-T-C-R-U-I-S-E dot com slash careers. Cruise is a place where you can build on your existing skills while developing new skills and experiences that are pioneering the future of industry. There are opportunities for back-end engineers, front-end developers, machine learning programmers, and many more positions. At Cruise, you will be surrounded by talented, driven engineers, all while helping make cities safer and cleaner. Apply to work at Cruise by going to getcruise.com slash careers. That's getcruise.com slash careers. Thank you to Cruise for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. The workflow for a scenario is like you figure out how to program an incident and then the incident occurs and then you use your monitoring and your logging tools and your tracing tools to figure out what's going on throughout your infrastructure and how your infrastructure is adapting to that. What's the workflow there? So usually what I like to say with folks, so I guess it depends on the type of enterprise as well, but often it starts with, I think a good idea is to do a game day. So that's more what the workflow would be. So often you have somebody who says, okay, we're going to be able to get value out of doing chaos engineering. And something that we often never do is sit down together in a room, whiteboard out our architecture and figure out how does this system work? What are the different things we know about this system? What are the gaps that we have? And then we actually get together and figure out what scenario makes the most sense for us to run in this game day. And usually a game day would run for one to three hours. So you might do one scenario, but you might actually get through and do up to three scenarios. But that's a really good workflow for getting started because I think it makes so much more sense to actually get together. Like once you've had one person learns how to do chaos engineering, like the actual, I've installed the agent, I've made sure that it can run, I've made sure that I can see the results in my monitoring tool, then you can go and actually plan out your game day and get started. But the best thing is to have, you know, four to say 15 engineers in a room doing it together, it's actually very good when you do it as a collaborative exercise. That's a great way to do it. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about different kinds of failures. So one important distinction that we can make about failures is it's usually a partial failure, in my experience, more than a complete failure. When you're talking about systemic failures and partial failures are often harder to diagnose, they're harder to deal with, 
They may even be harder to reproduce. What's the difference between approaching partial failures and approaching complete failures when you're trying to reproduce incidents? So if it's, say, a complete failure, like that might be, for example, you know, your DNS is currently not working. And so let, let's talk about that example for a little bit. Say if you have one DNS provider, like, say, Route 53, and then, you know, what happens when Route 53 isn't working correctly, which that often will happen. It's happened to me before in the past. I talked to a lot of folks where that happens. Then it's really good practice to have a secondary DNS provider, say, for example, NS1. And what you need to do is make sure that you've configured that correctly. So you need to be able to fail over from Route 53 to NS1. And you need to make sure that you've built that out correctly. You need to also make sure that everyone in your department or whoever needs to be responsible for that knows how that works. As you onboard new engineers, you need to make sure that they understand how DNS failover works at your company, especially because this is something that's not very standard across different companies. You know, if you change companies, Everyone might handle DNS differently, especially because a lot of people don't actually do DNS failover. They might only have one provider. So I think that's the example of, yeah, like sometimes it just won't work and you need to do it. And I think a good practice that I did in the past when I was working on Magic Pocket, the storage system at Dropbox, was we would actually run DNS failover exercises every week. Whoever was on call had to do that. And so we would purposely inject that failure to make sure that we were ready to be able to handle it because it is so critical to your system and you need to make sure that DNS is being handled well for everything to operate correctly. If it's like a partial failure, there are lots of interesting examples there. Like I found, you know, often there'll be partial failures related to networking And to me, like in my career, like I've got so much value out of just learning more about networking, understanding networking tools, understanding how the network works at my company, getting to know the network engineers better, understanding what they prioritize, what they're focused on, what changes they're making to the system. Because I've definitely worked on a lot of networking outages and those to me, yeah, sometimes you'll be like, oh, I I seem to be having issues, but only for a short amount of time that everything seems fine then everything's back to being bad again it's like flaky or just like you know up and down some sort of problem occurring and so one of the things that I think is valuable there is to actually sit down with the network engineering team and you can do a game day and say look like we notice some issues but they don't happen all the time they're sort of like intermittent problems can we do a game day on network related problems and try and figure out how we can fix it and you know one of the examples for me like that I had as a networking related outage but it was kind of like it would happen every so often not all the time and it was really quite hard to solve was because the networking team rolled out QoS which is kind of like quality of service for networking and it means that they're able to prioritize what traffic you know, what traffic they choose. So it depends if they've picked your traffic and they're going to give your traffic a lot of priority or some other traffic in the system. And the traffic for me for, you know, database clones was not being prioritized as much. So I was having some issues there with networking and database clones. So then that meant I actually had to talk to them and say, hey, like, I'm noticing this problem, not really sure what's going on. I've tried to rerun some clones. I've tried to kill clones midway, which is chaos engineering, to be able to see like what happens when a clone gets killed in the middle and then it has to restart. That's a lot of the work that you really need to do when you dive into it to be able to make improvements and measuring like all of those metrics. How long does it take for it to die? How long does it take for it to restart? How long does it take for it to finish? What are the different networking issues you see over time? And yeah, it ended up that they had been lowering the priority for clones specifically, but then I was able to showcase that data, explain to them when I do these certain types of chaos engineering actions on clones, it actually is a really big negative impact that the traffic's not being prioritized by the network engineering team. And then they actually did agree to reprioritize it, which was great and meant that we're able to, you know, that's like getting buy-in for me as an example from the network engineering team to make sure that I'm able to, appropriately service customers and make sure that they're always getting the best experience possible. So yeah, that's an example there. And I would say like those outages where it's like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. It seems to not work specifically for this thing, but I'm not really sure. Like, you know, you need to collect a lot more data and then you need to try and figure out who you should work with to move forward and actually make an improvement. Yeah. And you can also have these failures where like the failure occurs 
you figure out your response. Then so you respond. Maybe you go to a backup, and then you have like a degraded system, and so you you operate in this degraded state for a little bit, but then you recover your system, but you still have like a degraded state, and you can't get back to a full recovery because you have made this change to your degraded system like you've made some kind of change to your infrastructure just like a knee-jerk reaction and then you've injured your infrastructure and it becomes difficult to switch back to a normal state i guess this is more of a question around uh around incident response but do you have any suggestions for avoiding getting into these kind of degraded states that are really hard to roll back from yeah that's a great question and i mean I think about this so much because I worked in banking and one of the biggest things in banking is rollback. Like you need to be able to roll back every single change that goes into production. So really that's a different way of thinking. Everything that you build has to be built in a way that you could roll it back and it wouldn't be really like closely tied to all these other systems so that you wouldn't be able to actually get it out of production. So you just build your software in a very different way. So that's like the first thing. And I think that's good. I think it's good to build software in a way that you can actually roll back because, you know, when I did start working at startups, I was like, oh, you know, we should just roll back that change. Like it just went out, let's roll it back. And sometimes people would say, what do you mean roll back? Like, let's roll forward. I'm like, no, no, like I don't want to patch in prod. Like I'm not a fan of patching in prod, which is what I would call it when you're having an incident And then somebody like on the fly says like, I'll just make this extra change. But what happens if that extra change causes more incidents? You know, that's patching and prod. It's often faster to just take the code that was recently committed and just roll it back. Like, and that's what we did at Dropbox. And it was much better to be able to roll back, you know, always have that state. That's a steady state that you can get back to. But yeah, I mean, I'm not sure why that is still a debate in industry. Like I'm a big fan of rolling back. The idea of just people having access and writing code and just shipping it without any tests while an incident is happening and, you know, there's no time for code review or they're they're not going through anything correctly is just really dangerous. And also, you know, if you were working somewhere like a bank, you just can't do that. You're actually not allowed to do that because when the regulators come to review your work, they'll ask, why did this incident happen? Why did this incident get worse? during the incident, then they would say, oh, this person actually did all these things wrong. That's like definitely not going by the book. And that's why the incident got worse. And then you might lose your license and not be able to operate as a business. So that's why like people who've worked in big enterprises, like with heavy regulations, have a different type of view of the world. Like that's definitely impacted my view, but it's worked well for me, like working at startups and working at enterprise. Like it's super fast to roll back if you build your software in a way that you can. So then you can actually like move fast, but not break things like in a bad way. You're moving fast. You're doing chaos engineering in a really good way. You know, you're actually thinking through it. It's more like doing surgery. You've got all the data up front. You're doing it in a really thoughtful, controlled way so that you're focused on getting value for customers. I think I actually saw that point about the degraded systems and the difficulties of that brought up in a talk by Adrian Cockcroft, who, you know, he's the industry luminary that people really love and he's a really great speaker. And he always seems to be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, he predicts trends and then they tend to come true because he's, you know, he's worked so long in the industry and it's like he's, you know, he worked at eBay and then worked at Netflix for a really long time and orchestrated their microservices effort. And then now he works at AWS. He's like, you know, near the top of AWS. And he has been talking a lot about chaos engineering recently. Have you had any enlightening conversations with him about chaos engineering, why he's so interested in it? Yeah, definitely. So last year, Adrian came and spoke at our chaos conference, which was awesome. It was the first conference that we'd held. And we ran the second one again recently, which was great. But it was really cool to have him do the opening keynote and just talk about how the industry's changed. And he he talks a lot about why chaos engineering is valuable. And it's because systems are actually much more complex now. And we're seeing a lot more users. And then also there's a lot more incidents and a lot more outages. But we also have the ability and the skills to think about how do I build graceful degradation into my application. So he talks about that a lot and just being prepared for failure. And that's something that 
everyone at AWS, when you speak to them, they'll say, yeah, you should definitely do chaos engineering. Like every single person that works there, because they know that sometimes a customer might say, oh, I just expected that it would work like all the time, but their computer systems, you know, their machines, machines turn off, machines have to be rebooted, machines have to have security patches applied. Like there's a lot of things that need to happen. So that's why they're all such big fans. Like they've seen tons of, you know, some of the biggest outages that have occurred across the world and they really want to help everybody prepare for it. So they just really like to focus on that idea of preparing for failure. Yeah, Adrian's awesome. <laughs> oh, he sure is. Yeah, he's super entertaining too. Yeah. I don't know if like he has this way of speaking with a very soft cadence while saying things that are extremely insightful or in some cases alarming. <laughs> it just has this like this very straight cadence. I don't know. I watch him for rhetorical tips almost. <laughs> but yeah, so what does the next five years for Gremlin look like? So yeah, now that we've release scenarios i think the next you know for the rest of this year i'm really looking forward to seeing how everybody uses that to be able to reproduce incidents and focus on reducing mtdd reducing mttr reducing repeat incidents and being better prepared for outages feeling like you know they're confident if an outage happens i know how to handle it and i think it also helps people work together in a team as engineers which is great too then we've got some other things that are coming up, but I guess I'm not allowed to share those types of things. You know, when you have like secret, really cool secret things that you're working on. So I can't share too much there, but we've got some really great new features and products that we're working on that are coming out, which is great. And as an industry, like what I would love to see is just more folks sharing their failure stories, but in a way where it's like, this is what happened. This is what we learned about it. And this is what we did to actually improve our system. These are the actions that we took. And this is then how it helped us because I think that's what we really need to do. Like not just say this is the failure that occurred, but what did you do after that failure occurred? You know, what were the action items that you took? Which ones were the most valuable to you? Was it technical? Was it people related? So like, you know, as an example of a people related change you might make, you might say, let's prioritize on call training as a technical change that you might make. It might be, let's fix our auto scaling rules. So I'd really love to just hear more stories there. And we also have like a Chaos Engineering Slack, which everyone can join. It's really easy to get to just if you go to gremlin.com slash Slack. And it's just like a public open community of about three and a half thousand engineers who are in there talking about Chaos Engineering, Incident Management, SRE, which is good too, like all great things to hear about. And then the other thing is I'm the co-chair for SRECon west america in 2020 which is going to be in march in the bay area and we're going to be focusing a lot on deep work so the idea that it's really important for sres to be able to focus on deep work and making the time to be able to figure out how does my system really work what happens when failure occurs and also just being able to identify how do you get the time for that deep work how do you avoid distractions And how do you get buy-in from your organization that deep work is important? And then we also just want everyone to come together and share what they've learned. Because the thing is like deep work takes time. If you want to become an expert in a system, then it takes a lot of time. But the cool thing is you can then come out of that, you know, that period of time where you've like really dived deep and learn a ton and you can share it with everyone else. And I think that's how we all grow as a community and we move forward. I saw a really cool talk at SRECon early this year, which was all about logging. And it was awesome. Like it was the best logging talk I've seen in so long. And it was really cool because it was just a super deep dive on logging. And I loved it. And it was someone who'd been working on just specifically logging actually for 20 years. Like you can imagine how much they have to teach everybody else. And I think that that's great. So I hope over the next five years, we actually do that more. We have engineers come together to share what's worked, what hasn't worked, you know, when something went bad, what they did to fix it how they've then improved over time, that would be really great. And the other thing that I'm seeing, which is interesting too, is a lot of folks coming straight out of college and going into SRE, which I think is really exciting. And that just shows you that there's this big shift. So I think it shows that, you know, when students are studying at college, they realize that reliability is number one. Like it's really important. Everyone, a lot of people say reliability is feature zero. And I think seeing that trend from engineers going, 
you know, they're at college, they're learning about how to build systems. And then they go, the first job I want to have is I want to be an SRE and I want to focus on reliability and durability because that's important. That's what people really want to have on the internet these days when everyone's so connected. So I think that's very cool change. And that never happened before. Usually I'd only met SREs who had been in industry for like, I don't know, maybe six to 10 years. And then they changed to become an SRE. And the other thing that's happening too, which is interesting is, you know, say self-driving cars. That's very interesting in terms of chaos engineering. I saw there was self-driving prams recently to carry and transport your kids. I'm like, wow, that's like a whole different world. So, Sorry, self-driving what? Prams, like a stroller for children, for babies. Oh, no. I know. So I'm like, <laughs> wow, like definitely, you know, as an engineer, you would want to be making sure that was very reliable. So, yeah, I just think reliability is... I hope it's not. That's, that's not made by Boeing, is it? No, it's not. But oh, my gosh. I, I think I, I tweeted it and somebody wrote back and said, I would not want to be the engineer building that software. Cause, I would not either. Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. Like, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. Tammy, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you once again. Great to speak with you as well, Jeff. Thanks for having me. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.